Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of a Light Unto My Path podcast. I'm your host Howard Sides and today we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation chapter 21 and verse number 5. Uh, now if if you thought the last podcast uh, abruptly ended, it did. That's the first one I've had. It just kind of cut me off. I was trying to get through the end. I got the majority of it out, so <laughs> I apologize for that. Uh, but that's just the way it goes sometimes. It's just run out of time as it is. Okay, so uh, where we are, uh, the breakdown of chapter 21 is as follows. Verses 1 through 8, we see John's vision of the New Jerusalem. John's vision, verses 1 through 8. And then in verses 9 through verse 27, the end of the chapter, we see John's visit to the New Jerusalem. Now, within this vision, uh, there's two parts. Verses 1 and 2, we see what he sees, what he sees. And then verses 3 through 8, uh, it tells us what he hears, what he hears. Now, within what he hears, uh, it is divided into two parts as well. Verses 3 and 4, which we just completed, we see the uh, words of the angel. The words of the angel. Now we're beginning verse 5, and down through verse 8, we'll see the words of the Almighty. The words of the Almighty. And so let's just start uh, <clears throat> verse 5, and uh, but we'll just read down through verse 8. I know we're not going to cover all that today, but. Well, at least, well, let's just read 5 and 6. How about that? Revelation 21, verses 5 through 6, it says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Freely. No cost. No charge, no penance, no price, freely. We don't even really know freedom until you've experienced the freedom that God gives us. Okay, verse 5, here we go. And he that sat upon the throne said, now the one sitting on the throne here uh, is most likely Christ. Now, I know a lot of this we can attribute to God the Father, and we certainly can in the aspect of the God and the Father and the Holy Spirit. They're all a trinity. They're all one. Um, but I believe some of the language that will come out later on in this verse and in verse 6 uh, points to things that are characteristics of Christ. Now, we know God the Father sits on the throne. We know Christ has a throne as well. But I think uh, many of the things that are attributed to what this one says, this one on this throne, this throne, what he says about himself points to Christ. And we'll kind of get to that to, to a minute. But no matter what it is, uh, we have unquestionable divine authentication and authority from the one speaking, whoever it is on this throne, Christ or uh, God, the Father. I'll take either one, right? All right, Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 and verse 9, it says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. And then in the following chapter, chapter 5 and verse 1, we read, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book 
written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, this is the same one who John mentioned in the above references, but the difference here is that this is the first speech, which is expressly ascribed to him. Note it says, and he that sat upon the throne said, said. So it's the first time it's specifically uh, put to him. Okay. <laughs> Can't get it out. Ugh. All right. Next phrase. Behold, I make all things new. Now, this marks the third time that Christ has repeated the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, this is the prophecy. Isaiah 65, verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. And I know where some people are going with it. They're thinking, well, the creative acts is something that belongs to God the Father. And you know, one side of that I agree with you. Yeah, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we cannot forget what John tells us uh, in the beginning of his book uh, or in his gospel. And notice what he says. John chapter 1, it says in the beginning, that was when the creation took place. In the beginning was the word. Okay, so the word was in the beginning. And the word was with God. Okay, so God was there. The word was there. And the word was God. Okay, so now we identify the word as being God as well. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. That is attributing the creative act to Christ being there and having a role in creation. So when it says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, this is not something that only God the Father um, can take upon himself. Christ has a role in that as, as well. Do you get what I'm saying? Yes, it is God the Father, okay, as in the characteristics and all that. But the three are a trinity. They are all three in one at the same time. We could also say that the Holy Spirit has a role in the creation. Um, it's, it's part of the attributes of God. But anyway, getting to what we're saying here, uh, th this phrase, uh, Christ said this phrase three times. Once here uh, where he quoted this phrase, but then twice he did it during his earthly ministry uh, in the Gospels. Now, this redemptive act of making things new is much broader than the individual redemption of sinful men. It extends to the redemption of the earth and even the entire creation. And when I use that phrase, entire creation, I don't mean that just the earth is going to get made over. I mean creation, all of it. The stars, the moon, the sun, all of it. What's going on with the sun right now? It is gradually disintegrating. That's a sign of death. It's dying. Uh, how many times have we heard of dead stars, uh, falling stars, comets? All of that is an attribute, a, a repercussion, a result, a reaction to the act of sin. God's going to redo all of that. There will be no more falling stars. There will be no more exploding novas because there will be no more death. Okay, David Guzik in his commentary on Revelation 
He brings out a great statement about this process of making things new. He said, and I quote, Our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state and wish Adam would have never done what he did. But we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man, that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. Great statement right there, because I've even thought that myself. Man, where would we be today if Adam had never sinned? You know what? We'd be in the same place. If Adam hadn't sinned, Cain would have sinned. If Cain hadn't sinned, somebody else down the line would have sinned. It was eventually going to happen. It had to happen, as it were. Now, when God finally completes this work of making things new, or Christ, God, they will stay new. This totally defies the chaos theory, also called the law of entropy, or more specifically, the second law of thermodynamics, which states that as one goes forward in time, the net entropy or the degree of disorder, of any isolated or closed system will always increase, or at least stay the same. Simply put, the longer something exists, the more it wears out, erodes, or decays. All right? Next phrase, And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now this is the last of 16 different times in 14 verses that John is commanded to write in Revelation. As John is so enthralled with what he has shown, what he hears, and who is speaking the words, uh, he has to be reminded once again to write things down. And, I mean, again, place yourself in John's shoes. Can you imagine being out here on this Isle of Patmos? Uh, it's isolated. There's no friends. There's no family. There's no communication. Maybe they're getting letters passed. I doubt it. All he has to do is to sit out here and meditate to pray, to think on the things of Christ. Lo and behold, here comes this vision of Christ. Hey, John, I'm going to show you my revelation. And you're going to have to write all this stuff down because I'm telling you, and of course I'm paraphrasing all this, Christ is saying, I'm about to blow your mind. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm going to tell you the future. And I'm not just going to tell you. I'm going to take you there and I'm going to literally show you the future. Now, what would you do? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. John's got the the, uh, you know, open a gate mouth and huh? What? <laughs> and he got write it, John. John, write it. John, don't forget, write it. Write it down, John. <laughs> All right. Uh, the next phrase here, he says, true and faithful. True and faithful. Right, for these words are true and faithful. Okay, now. Isaiah chapter 65 verse 16 says that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. Okay? In the Hebrew, the word truth is translated into the word amen. <laughs> Did you know that? A-M-E-N, amen, is a Hebrew word meaning truth. So whenever you hear people say amen, they're saying truth, truth, amen, totally agree, totally. Now, the blessing of the God of truth in Isaiah 65, 16 is understood in the following verse, verse 17, to be the new creation that God will bring out. He says, for behold, I create new heavens 
and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Now, the connection between verses 16 and 17 is also found in the repetition of the former troubles. Things are forgotten. They shall not be remembered. All those little sayings. Just as the trustworthiness of God and his promise in Isaiah are based on the absolute irrevocability of the coming new creation, so God's promise of a new creation in Revelation 21.5 is trustworthy and true because God is the one who will, without a doubt, carry it out. God says, I said it and it's so. I'm done with that. <laughs> That's it. Okay, verse 6. Let's go on to verse 6. And he said unto me, it is done. Now the phrase, it is done, uh, in Greek, this is the word genomai. Genomai. G-I-N-O-M-A-I. Genomai. And it is in the perfect tense, meaning that the phrase uh, could be said, it has become. It is now. It's done. It's it's. Boof, here it is, or boom, there it is, or however you want to say it. Now, the perfect tense emphasizes the completion of the task of creating the new order and the ongoing effects of that creative act, which continue into the presence or, or the present as seen by John. So the words of the Father are reminiscent of the words of the Son, which resulted in redeeming or in redeemed saints being present to enjoy the new creation recorded in John chapter 19, verse 30. It is finished. It is finished. Now that phrase, it is finished, uh, is the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. Tetelestai. It is also in the perfect tense, and it, it, it the phrase means it has come to an end. Uh, it has been completed, or it is now accomplished. Now, Jesus' words emphasize the closure which his death on the cross brought to the old order of things. The Father's words emphasize the new beginning of blessing which flow from the work of the Son. Now, this phrase is in reference to the work accomplished throughout the whole drama of human history prior to the eternal state. This statement does not mean that there are no future works of God but that a major work has been brought to completion and that the works now relating to the eternal state are beginning. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 has been fulfilled, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in all in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, this is the same phrase, uh, that is used in Revelation chapter 16, verse 17, which says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, uh, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Now, the difference is that here in Revelation 16, 17, the end of Christ's judgments were reached. But here in chapter 21 and verse 6, the end of time itself has been reached. Throw that watch away. You're not going to need it anymore. Time does not matter anymore. We sing a song with that phrase in it. Somewhere I can't remember right off the top of my hand what it is, but it's in there. So this phrase is based on the words of the cross. It is finished. Where what was then in view has now reached the actual conclusion. The Lamb of God took away the sin of the world and has introduced an everlasting peace. The next phrase here, he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. 
Now, the speaker here introduces himself as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It is by this precise title that Christ is introduced in chapter 1 and verse 8, and the phrase is again found in chapter 22 and verse 13. Now, while the expression is appropriate for God the Father, the fact that it is introduced in chapter 1 and verse 8 in reference to Christ seems to confirm the idea that Christ is also in view in this passage as the one sitting on this throne. Now, while uh, with the beginning of the eternal state, there is a difference in the divine undertaking, but not a difference in the divine majesty of the second person. The phrase, the beginning and the end, tells us that all testimony on earth began with Jehovah God and will end in his glory. All creation, all promise, all prediction, all prophecy, all love, all testimony, grace, salvation, and mercy have their source in Jehovah God, and in him is their fulfillment. When God has anything to do with it, it cannot fail. To man it may seem a failure, but to God not so. God is victorious in the end. Let me say that again. God is victorious in the end. Now, both of these titles are figures of speech called merisms. Merisms. M-E-R-I-S-M-S. Merisms. In which the figurative point is to mention the opposite poles of something in order to emphasize the totality of all the lines between. Now, the use of the first and last letter of the alphabet the Alpha and Omega, was typical of the ancients in expressing merisms. Now, the Jews would state that the law should be kept from the Aleph to Tau. That was the Jewish first letter and last letter. Aleph to Tau. That God is the beginning and end of history means that he, rule, he rules over all events in between. Verses 5 and 6 together are only the second time in the book of Revelation that God, or Christ, is explicitly quoted with the first time being in chapter 1 and verse 8. In both references, the title, the Alpha and the Omega, occurs. That this title appears at the beginning and end of the book is fitting and cannot be coincidence. The placement highlights the figurative point of the divine titles and points out that all events narrated and portrayed between chapter 1 verse 8 and chapter 21 and verse 6 lie under God's absolute sovereignty, as has all history prior to the writing of Revelation. Uh, last phrase in verse 6. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Now, this is the first of three promises given in verses 6 and verse 7. Christ here speaks this phrase in view of time conditions. For thirst is not something that characterizes the eternal state. Thirst is a symbol of unsatisfied desire, and that eminently marks the present time. For the thirsty, there is still the water of life, which springs up like a fountain and is freely given. Such is the grace of our God, persisting to the very end. <clears throat> um. Drinking and thirst are common pictures of God's supply and man's spiritual need. Drinking is an action, but an action of receiving, like faith, 
It is doing something, but it is not a merit-earning work in itself. C.H. Spurgeon said, <clears throat> excuse me, and I quote, What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive. To take in the refreshing draught, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet a draught of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing. It is even more simple than eating. <laughs> End quote. Wow, yeah, that's that's a way of putting it right there. I'm telling you, that that's awesome. <laughs> Good job, Spurgeon. It is. Salvation so simple. Mankind has made it difficult. Mankind himself has, has made it difficult. And God never intended for it to be difficult. Now, let's notice here the use of the word freely uh, is very significant here. The freely is the Greek word dorian. Dorian. D-O-R-E-A-N. Dorian. And it means as a gift without payment, gratuitously, undeservedly, and without reason. Let me say that one again. Undeservedly and without reason. <laughs> Why did God give us this gift of salvation, this water that symbolizes the gift of salvation freely? I mean, it cost him everything, and he doesn't charge us anything. How can that possibly be? <laughs> it, it defies logic. It defies understanding. It really does. The water of life is redemption, portrayed in many different aspects throughout the scriptures. Uh, here we go. Exodus 17, verse 6. Behold, I will stand before thee, there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Rock, Israel. <laughs> Where's Rock? I'm from there. Of all things, God pulls water out of a rock. Let's see you do that. Yeah, that's crazy. Psalms 36, 9. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Zechariah 13.1, in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. In the New Testament, the promise of redemption by the Holy Spirit is compared to life-giving water in John chapter 4, verses 10 through 14. Jesus answered and said unto her, or said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? 
<laughs> Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Can you imagine the look on Christ's face when she said, well, what kind of water have you got? Are you greater than our father Jacob who built this well and drank out of it himself? And he says, oh, if you only knew, if you only knew. Now, those coming out of the great tribulation were led by the lamb to living fountains of waters in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. During the millennium kingdom, living water flowed from the millennial temple, Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1, and then in verse 8 through 9. Uh, it's also mentioned in Joel chapter 3, verse 18, and in Zechariah chapter 14, and verse 8. A pure river of water of life flows from the throne of God and the Lamb in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 22 and verse 1. The final invitation given by the Spirit and the Bride in the book of Revelation is to take the water of life freely in Revelation 22:17. If this gift is free without cost, how can it be that so many refuse to accept it? The answer is found in their lack of thirst. It is free for him who thirsts. Do you know the Lamb is your Redeemer? Are you thirsty for this water which will become a fountain in you, springing up into eternal life or everlasting life? It is available for the asking to all who come to him in humility and in need. If you're not thirsty, you're not going to drink. So God help us. God help us to be thirsty. All right. Okay, um, we've got enough time. I think we'll go ahead and do verse 7. I haven't read that yet, so let's go ahead and read verse 7. And uh, then we'll break it down. Revelation 21, verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Okay, so the opening statement there, he that overcometh. Now, this is the second of the three promises we talked about, given in verses 6 and 7. This is the second one, he that overcometh. Now, at the same time, we see that there is a requirement for achieving these promises. And that requirement is the phrase, that overcometh. That overcometh. This uh, is telling us that the he here must do something. He that overcometh, overcome, uh, must do something rather than just thirst, which we just talked about in verse 6. He that is thirsty, I give the, the uh, fountain of the water of life freely. Well, if the water is right there in front of you, you're still going to die of thirst if you don't do something with that water. And the doing means he must, by faith, drink the water. You have to take it in. You have to drink it. So far, the recipients of the promises of the new creation have been only generally identified as his people in verse 3. But here in verse 7, we see a more precise definition of who God's people are. God's people are identified here as overcomers. Those whose lives are characterized by refusal to compromise their faith despite the threat of persecution. They ironically conquer when they maintain their faith, 
even though they may appear defeated in the world's eyes. The whole purpose of this verse and the whole of chapter 21, verse 1, down through chapter 22, verse 5, is to encourage true Christians to persevere through hardship in order to inherit the fullness of God's blessings. In the seven letters to the churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, the promise to the overcomer there, he that hath an ear, let him hear. That's in all seven letters. Chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29. And then in chapter 3, it's in verse 6, verse 13, and finally in verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear. The sound is there, but you're going to have to listen to it. You can hear it, but you're going to have to listen. All of these promises to the overcomer all refer to the salvation blessing of communion with God, which therein provides all the essentials of life, security, home, power, food, clothing, and a name, and therefore must apply to all believers who are included in the household of God. <clears throat> Next phrase, shall inherit all things. Shall inherit all things. Uh, what is meant by all things? I know there's some things we get. Sure, eternal life, salvation, uh, robe of white, all that. But what are all the things that are to be inherited? Well, I'm going to tell you right from the start that I, I there's no way to name them all. Uh, but we can give you a, a couple of them here that are mentioned uh, just in Revelation. Uh, we're going to inherit the tree of life. Here in verse 7, and then later in chapter 22 and verse 2. Uh, we will inherit inclusion in the new temple. That's mentioned in chapter 3 and verse 12. And then in chapter 21 uh, and verse 22. Uh, we will inherit participation in the new Jerusalem. Again, chapter 3 verse 12. Chapter 21 and verse 2. And also verse 10. Uh, we will inherit the name of God on one's person. Again, chapter 3, verse 12. Also, chapter 22 and verse 4. We will have the, uh, our name written in the book of life. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 21, verse 27. We will inherit bright garments. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 21, verses 2 and verse 9. Also, chapter 19, verses 7 through 8. Uh, we inherit a bright stone and a luminary. <laughs> yeah, chapter 2, verse 17, and also verse 28. Then chapter 21, verse 11, and then verses 18 through 21, and verse 23. Also in chapter 22, verses 5 and verse 16. We will inherit consummate reigning with Christ. Chapter 2, verses 26, 27. Chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 22, verse 5. And we'll also inherit exclusion. Exclusion from the second death. We will not be involved in the second death. We are removed. We are excluded from that. Chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 21, verses 7 through 8. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 17, the children of God are called heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. What an incredible promise that is. Uh, do you understand what heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ means? That means that anything and everything which the Father has, 
given to the Son is also the possession of the saints. Tony Guzik said, and I quote, It is demeaning of the saints, given their eternal position, to compete and strive over earthly morsels when all the while they have bank accounts swelling with eternal value. Paul recognizes this and admonishes the Corinthians not to boast or become partisan in their thinking because, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Similar to an earthly inheritance, the things which pass to the saints do so without reference of their merit or effort. They are attained solely because they stand as brothers of Christ. It is the value accumulated at the Father's hand which passes to the sons in their inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1, 11 and 12, and whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him whose worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, not only is the inheritance bountiful beyond measure, it is also incorruptible. In this world, we may lose our job, our savings, our home, our health, or even our loved ones. But our inheritance is God, in God is beyond the reach of disaster and loss. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, for you. Back to verse seven here. And I will be his God. And I will be his God. This is the final of the three promises given in verses six and seven. And I will be his God a source of complete and everlasting blessedness to the believers. What a statement that is. So simple, yet so definitive, so secure, so sound. The next phrase, and he shall be my son. He shall be my son. The phrase he shall be in the Greek is altos esomai. Altos esomai. A-U-T-O-S, like autos, and then E-S-O-M-A-I, which is translated into he, he shall be, which emphasizes the position of the believer as a son of God. This phrase also emphasizes the reason for the overcomer's inheritance, his position as a son of God. The phrase son of God describes those who are of direct descent from God, direct descent from God. Now, the angels were created directly by God and are called the sons of God. Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 4, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, 
The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Job chapter 38 and verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Adam was created directly by God and is called the son of God. Luke chapter 3 verse 38. Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. In his humanity, being born of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the son of God. Luke chapter 1, 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And also the redeemed, born of God's Spirit, are also the sons of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born of the Spirit, the overcomer has the spirit of adoption, who identifies him as a son, and therefore an heir. Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. And because ye are sons, God hath set sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The multiple pictures of end-time blessings mentioned above culminates in the end of verse 7 to be God's presence with his people and the more intimate title of a son. One difference between verse 3 and verse 7 is that the saints now are referred to individually as son in verse 7 instead of collectively as people in verse 3. Now this phrase, first of all, references God's promise of a coming son of David who would reign forever and his inheritance would be the earth. 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Psalms 89, 26 through 29. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Psalms chapter 2 and verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And then in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels saith he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This phrase, second of all, 
references God's promise in the concept of what is called corporate representation, by which Christ represents a particular group of people. Now, this particular group of people would be the saints who have placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Then through this faith, the saint then receives salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 9. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. With salvation, we are also adopted by God as one of his children. Romans chapter 8, 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, then we may be also glorified together. In that we have become adopted by God, we then also inherit fully what Christ inherits. Christ is still God's unique divine son, but those who he represents receive the privileges of his sonship also. All right, uh, I'm going to stop there and we'll pick up with verse eight in the next podcast. All right, I'm glad you could join me today or tonight or this morning, whenever you're listening to it. Uh, we've gotten through a couple of verses today and, and I did verse four in the last podcast, which was, uh, I kind of took it right to the bell on that one. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't do it this time, but uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I, I uh, We're, we're, we're slowly getting to the end we're, we're just about there um I th this is a, an incredibly incredibly in-depth book uh our sunday school class i was just looking at it today uh we started in 2014 we've almost been studying the book of revelation in our sunday school class for 10 years we've been there for nine years really and i'm telling you th there's just so much in it so much in it, it it's amazing but I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I, I, I just I, I just can't say it enough. I, I enjoy doing this. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy the learning part of it just as much as the teaching. Um, so continue to remember to pray for me and uh, pray for each other, all the listeners. Pray for your local church. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor. He needs it. And I uh, hope you join me on the next podcast, okay? So until then, God bless and have a great day.